500 years. <laughs> Hi, everyone. It's Jeff Till with 500years.org podcast. It's early January 2016. Happy New Year. Last Friday, uh, today's Monday, so three days ago, I took my two oldest kids to go see Star Wars The Force Awakens for the second time. They enjoyed it very much, as did I for the second time, and they, of course, asked, why are we seeing it at the theaters uh, again? Because, of course, if we ever watch movies these days, we watch them on Amazon or on DVD, and I had to answer, well, it's Star Wars, of course, you see it again at the theaters. When I was a kid, I saw it 11 times. At our school, they would have contests to see who could actually get their mothers to drag them to the theater multiple times to see Star Wars. Of course, back then, we didn't have uh, cable TV, we didn't have DVDs, we didn't have VHS. So once the movie left the theaters, there was pretty much no chance that you were ever going to see it again as long as you lived. As I took the kids home, we stopped by the grocery store to pick up our groceries, and we have this service where the store clerk, uh, you, you order your groceries online, then the store clerk walks out to the car to hand them to you. It was about three o'clock and he asked me, am I bringing my kids home from school? And we homeschool, of course. So I said, no, I don't send my kids to school. My kids go to Star Wars. Now we cue the Lucasfilm logo, and then we get the blue type, long time ago, galaxy far, far away, and the pause, and then... And of course, the big yellow logo explodes onto the screen and fades into the horizon, and then we see the yellow crawl of text come to tell us the story at that point. And that's when Jeff Till starts bawling like a big baby with tears just streaming out of his eyes in an uncontrollable and unexplainable emotional outburst that he's had, you know, for at least now 35 years since first seeing the film. 32 years, probably, to be honest. Uh, I first saw it when I was seven. Uh, It's so disconcerting to my children that they come over to see what's the matter. They want to console me. I tell them it's fine. They can just sit back down. Uh, And, of course, a smaller version of that event happens every time they reveal something from the the icons of the movie. So when they first reveal Han Solo and Chewbacca, when Princess Leia comes on screen, when we see Luke, when we first hear the first lightsaber pop, when we see the stormtroopers, etc. And I really can't explain it, although I try to. Uh, later in the car with my kids, I ask why I had such an emotional reaction. And I say, well, this has been a huge part of my whole life. Uh, it was something that, you know, my mother uh, brought me to the film. And I had this magical moment when I was seven years old. And it's been that way my whole life. I, you know, I had the sheets, uh, the bed sheets on my bed. <laughs> I had the Star Wars cards. I had the toys. And I saw each film, you know, dozens and dozens of times 
So I make up this story for my kids that it's this big part of my childhood, which is true. But that, I don't know if that really explains the emotional outburst that I had. The There's other things that bring me back to my childhood, uh, you know, be they pictures that I have drawn or maybe photographs from my childhood or possessions that I own, old toys or something. And nothing really does that to me. And I've seen hundreds of other films that I've really appreciated and really enjoyed. And none of them compel me to watch them over and over again. You know, nor do they have those iconic moments that are, are so, that resound uh, so perfectly, you know, like, like the lightsaber uh, or the characters that would actually elicit an emotional response. I'd like to consider myself the biggest Star Wars fan of all time. And certainly when I was seven or eight or 10 or 12, I would have thought myself this. But really, I'm just a guy who sees the movies and bought some toys and cries when they see the big logo. Uh, here's uh, the title of an article from a recent Onion about Star Wars The Force Awakens. It says, Guy wearing Chewbacca costume torn between seeing Star Wars and The Big Short. And the joke being here is that there's no other movies where people will actually show up dressed as the characters. Guardians of the Galaxy was a fondly made and exciting science fiction movie, but nobody showed up wearing their rocket raccoon costume. Star Wars also has, as everyone knows, for like 25 years now, they have their own festivals. Uh, people will uh, dress in costumes and spend, you know, weeks or days celebrating just Star Wars year after year. It's, it's such a vibrant part of their life that it can't be really described. The phenomenon can't be described as merely a movie that people like. Uh, I'm just going to do a quick Google search here for Star Wars tattoos. And the number here seems endless. I'm not even getting a number for how many uh, search results come back, but they're just countless. You can do this. Here's some actually some pretty entertaining ones. Um, there's ones that are very serious that have Darth Vader. Uh, here's one that has Calvin and Hobbes dressed as Han and Chewie in a uh, the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> so someone decided to get that permanently stained onto their skin. Uh, here's one. It's a tattoo of a penis uh, dressed as Darth Vader. So it's an erect penis. It's cartoon, and you can see sort of hairy testicles, and then the top, the, the head of the penis, but it's wearing a Darth Vader helmet. Uh, carrying a lightsaber and has a black suit on it. Uh, other ones have things that they've made up. Uh, so it's a stormtrooper, but it's uh, done in a different style. Uh, here's one of here's uh, a t tattoo of Luke fighting Darth Vader. Wow, this is kind of weird. Okay, here's one. It's a cartoon tattoo of Luke, like sort of an anime baby Luke giving Darth Vader. A big hug. Oh, that's sweet. Here's another that has a, it's sort of an optical illusion. It has a red lightsaber going through what looks like a woman's neck. So it enters the skin at the base of the neck and then the rest of the lightsaber comes out the other side. Here's one that has, it looks like uh, Luke's decapitated hand. One person here has a sand person on there. That's pretty unusual. And what I found really surprised is one person has uh, Wicket the Ewok. So Ewoks, uh, probably short of Jar Jar Banks, were some of the most unpopular characters, but people still thought that would be a great thing to have a tattoo. 
Uh, one person has a full body tattoo of the Emperor looking over uh, what looks like Darth Vader and Obi-Wan having a fight full with uh, TIE fighters. Here's another one that has Princess Leia and Han Solo uh, embracing, and it has sort of the old-fashioned uh, pirate, or not pirate, but uh, sailor tattoo, and it says, in love with a scoundrel. Uh, other people have schematics for the Death Star and for the Millennium Falcon. Uh, oh, here's one that actually has Admiral Akbar uh, tattooed onto someone's arm. Uh, another one with uh, Queen Amidala, the one from Phantom Menace, in her full makeup. Someone liked apparently liked Phantom Menace so much that that was worthy of a tattoo. Uh, other people have made up ones of Princess Leia dressed in not just her bikini, but in other bikinis that don't exist. Uh, here's one of a Jedi I recognize from one of the films, but uh, is one of those minor ones that gets killed, like in uh, Attack of the Clones. Darth Maul gets in. Here's here's a, a tattoo of a stormtrooper, but it's a stormtrooper lingerie costume. Uh, so imagine like a, a sexy woman wearing stormtrooper lingerie. That's what it is. Here's the tattoo of Yoda wearing 3D glasses and eating a bucket of popcorn. Boy, I could just go on forever here. Let's try a different one. Let's um, let's Google uh, Princess Leia bikini. It's a space bikini. And we can do images here. Uh, there's at least seven purveyors of costumes who will sell you this. And you know, these are actually mostly pictures of the princess herself. But if I scroll down, you can find countless images of amateur people who desire to wear this costume. There's a lot of fantasy art. Anyway, the point here is that people are taking this to a level of emotional connectedness that's way beyond anything that should be happening just because it's a cool science fiction film. And what I really want to do is sort of figure out why. No, I think the th here's the funny thing. There's kind of a there's kind of a funny psychological cognitive element to all this. I think the people like myself who appreciate the EU for what it was, which is a you know a rich 35 year um, canon with continuity, with intense concern for continuity, isn't that's the thing we like the most. We don't want it to be separate. Like in a way, we're such slaves to Star Wars. Like I. I want I want the Lucasfilm imprimatur on these books, I, and I don't want the Legends thing. I want to know that it's the canon. I don't, you know. So that's <laughs> that's the tricky thing. That's the tricky thing. But like I said, I'm mostly in that position because they've they've stopped it all together. I so I want it to not just exist off there. I don't, you know, I don't want it to just be this contraband, exciting thing under the cover that you have to hide from the from the Mickey police. I want it to be a living, breathing thing that can be parallel to the Mickey canon. I'm imagining like this giant Death Star, but with Mickey ears, you know, floating over the, you know, over some some hapless planet about to be destroyed. Yeah. It, um, it's a shame, by the way, because because of the way in which the fans of the new canon have actually turned on the old fans of the old canon, and it's 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 Disney's fault. I mean, in a way, Disney really, Mickey really, really is the emperor. I mean, he really has turned us against one another. I mean, <laughs> these two camps should love one another because we're all hardcore Star Wars fans, but. Because of the way in which they went about it, because of the way in which they stamped the Legends banner, because of the way in which they've cut off the development of that old thing, they've basically made new fans look at us and say, oh, yeah, you must have been bad. 
a lot of mess. They go, oh yeah, those those stories must have been awful. Um, oh yeah, and the prequel sucked anyway, right? So yeah, none of that stuff was good. We should have gotten rid of it. No, we didn't have to get rid of it, and that's my point. So that was Chris Nelson, Star Wars fan on the Isaac Morehouse podcast. That was episode 42. You can get that on iTunes. Again, Isaac Morehouse podcast. The whole episode is about an hour long, and Chris goes through uh, what he anticipates uh, for episode seven. This came up before it came out. And then also his longer conversation about the extended universe. Now, Chris, uh, I, don't, I don't know if he has a Darth Vader penis tattoo on his shoulder or if he dresses up like Chewbacca, but he's a deep fan in a much different, uh, almost more intellectual way where he's invested greatly in the extended universe. The extended universe is this vast array of books, novelizations, comic books, uh, cartoons, video games, all of this supplementary media that is not that is official Star Wars story but does not take place within the six movies, now seven movies. And this has been like a 30-year-old uh, tradition where hundreds of books have been written and they go through a formal process with Lucasfilm to make sure that the characters and the stories and the events, uh, one, do not contradict each other, but two, are actually official canon, meaning that they are official parts of the saga. Now, his beef is that when Disney came along, uh, they found the extended universe to be too complicated to work in or too limiting uh, in a creative way. And they decided to scrap that canon, uh, give it a, a sort of a junior varsity name of Legends, meaning it's it exists, they're still going to make money off it, but it's not part of the official story. And they will make their own uh, new canon going forward, only including the prequels, uh, some of the recent cartoon series, and the seventh, uh, and the, the the original three films, and the new films that they make to be official story. Now, what I find fascinating about this, and I, I do urge you to listen to the entire podcast because he goes into great detail uh, about this whole situation, is that uh, these fans, and, and hopefully I'll meet Chris someday, and hopefully he won't find this offensive, but that these fans uh, have an obsessive or an emotional need to understand what the true story is, so they. Uh, it's very frustrating to have an authority come in and change what the official story is, even though the story is complete fiction. And that's, I think, more so than the, the, the tattoo-wearing person or the Chewbacca costume-wearing person or the Princess Leia uh, bikini wannabe or even me uh, who cries during the logo sequence. Uh, that's a much more deeper uh, investment in fanhood than we've seen previously. So again, the big question is why? Why is this franchise, why is this saga so emotionally compelling uh, to any of the different sort of fan segments that I had just mentioned earlier? Is it the the story? Because uh, the story is, you know, it's fairly simple. Uh, I, I don't think it's so remarkable on its own merit that we become crazy. It, it might be the characters. Uh, it could be the music. Is it just the the portrayal of, of good and evil being so uh, bipolar or so, you know, dichotomous? Is that a word? Um, you know, black and white, light side, dark side. Uh, is it the whole idea of fighting your dad or redeeming him from being crappy? Although the phenomenon started uh, in the episode four when we didn't even know that Darth Vader was Luke's dad and 
uh, Luke doesn't even fight him. Uh, he's actually fought by Obi-Wan Kenobi, if you recall, from your, your own 20 or 30 viewings of the film. You know, was it becoming uh, bigger than the ordinary? Is it the story about being a farm boy who has a terrible life, who then gets to be a star pilot, uh, is actually identified to have superpowers, and then gets to use them? Um, at the time, you know, we could say it was the technology of the film, maybe. I don't know. Uh, I remember when the previews came out for it back in what had been 76, 77, they also ran a preview for Burt. I was, actually, I was with at the drive-in with my parents uh, seeing the Burt Reynolds movie, The End, which is a movie where uh, Burt Reynolds uh, swims out in the ocean to kill himself. Uh, but I digress. Uh, but the other, the other preview they showed for that film was Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. And if you were to put the two movies next to each other, uh, Star Wars looks like a movie that could still be produced today as far as its effects and its acting. And Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger uh, looks like a bad stop-motion animated film with uh, people pretending to fight in front of uh, a movie screen. The music, of course, uh, Lucas himself said he doesn't even know if the movies would work without the music. And I want to agree. Um, we have a Lego game called Lego Star Wars, and it's all the Star Wars characters and scenes redone with Legos and those little uh, Lego people. And they keep the original soundtrack, the, the fully orchestrated John Williams soundtrack, and somehow even the Lego video game seems to still feel like a piece of Star Wars and can still draw those emotional tugs. So to sort of close this segment out is... Uh, I'm completely perplexed. I was hoping to come to this podcast with a definitive reason why this movie makes people absolutely crazy. And even though I live within this obsession, within this craze, I can't seem to figure it out. All I know is that it does. an idea that I've always wanted Star Wars to be mine, uh, to at least belong to me or at least to my generation. And I don't think that can ever be the case because new people who are younger than me uh, come into the fold with just as much passion and just as much interest. And, you know, as context, I was, as I said before, I was seven years old when it came out, uh, the same age as my son is now. And I for long thought that that would be not, you know, as an adult, like that would be too young of, of a cognitive age to really appreciate it. Now that I have a seven year old boy, uh, I realize that that's actually the perfect age to be to see something like Star Wars uh, because your mind is completely sophisticated and fully alert to this while also being wildly open to to fantasy and excitement and to boy stuff. Now, the one claim that I could say that my generation uh, experienced it differently is that we, one, had to see it in the theaters, so there was no VCRs, there was no cable, uh, there's only three channels on TV, which meant that you had to capture the moment in the theater, and uh, you had to see it enough times knowing that you may never, ever get to see it again, because once they took it out of the theaters, that was it. So at the elementary school, uh, every kid almost had a contest where... You talked about how many times uh, you went and saw it. Uh, my count was 11 for the first movie. They actually had an original run of the film that stayed out in the theaters for probably a year. 
Uh, they then they took it out. You know, the run ended like it does with all movies. And then they even brought it back for a second screening. And everyone saw it a gazillion times again. Uh, another thing that we experienced differently, as I said, with that technology, is that we were the first ones to see that thing switch over from what looked like uh, 1950s, 1960s monster technology to what would be the standard uh, going forward, you know, for the next arguably, you know, 35 years. Uh, I think even with the, the emergence of CGI, we haven't really seen a, a vast improvement in the production quality of films above the original uh, 1977 Star Wars uh, to the point where when episode seven came out, one of the big deals is that they were going to use a lot of the 1977 technology uh, using real sets, real costumes, real robotics, stuff like that, because they thought it had a better look than the CGI that we've all become accustomed to. Another experience that was unique to me is uh, we didn't know that Darth Vader was Luke's dad. That was actually a big mystery. Uh, no one was really positing it during when the first film came out. And then even after Empire Strikes Back came out and uh, Darth Vader says, you know, Luke, I'm your father, uh, a lot of people didn't believe it. They had, uh, you'd go buy restaurants like Burger King and the owners would say, you know, is Darth Vader really Luke's dad? And you can sort of see how that disbelief still went through, uh, because even in Return of the Jedi, uh, Luke has to have that scene with Yoda. One thing remains. Vader. You must confront Vader. Then, only then, a Jedi will you be. And confront him you will. Master Yoda, is Darth Vader my father? Arrest thy maid. Yes. Rest. Yoda, I must know. Your father is. that I know the truth. No. Unfortunate that you rushed to face him. That incomplete was your training. That not ready for the burden for you. Ooh, chills right there. And then I think uh, Yoda dies about... Oh, like two minutes uh, after that scene. But anyway, so if you can imagine, uh, this was probably one of the biggest and most important mysteries and story arcs within the entire original trilogy. And all of us uh, who had the, the pleasure of seeing this in the theaters for the first time uh, got to experience that uh, with complete ignorance, you know, during the first and most of the second movie that, that this relationship existed with still, it's still being in doubt uh, halfway through Return of the Jedi. So just if we think about this, the, the Star Wars storyline now and every, everyone who would have seen it 
probably on DV, you know, VHS or DVD after the release of Return of the Jedi, everyone goes into the movie knowing that uh, Darth Vader, the Dark Father, is Luke's dad, and yet the movie is still completely enjoyable. And had they had they executed the prequels uh, better, we could have even known that whole storyline right from the beginning and still have had a great time. And that's not to make commentary on the prequels just yet, which I want to do later, but just to say that the story still works even when the mystery isn't there. But to think of it, to be part of that experience, I treasure very much. And I can, if you know, as if this counted for anything, can hold that up a little bit higher than anyone else younger than me uh, who got to see the films with that secret exposed. Now, the other advantage that I had and my generation uh, had in seeing the films for the first time when they came out in the theaters is that not only has the the technical aspects of everything that people have seen afterwards become the norm, you know, seeing a spaceship fly uh, in 3D in space is no big deal anymore, or seeing an animated monster who looks like he could be photorealistic. All of that stuff, everyone's already experienced. Uh, everyone also now coming into it, if uh, people who are 10 years younger than me or people who are the age of my son have seen so much derivative content, uh, you know, in every movie that even seeing a sword made out of lasers is not a new experience. Uh, Seeing a blaster gun is not a new experience. Uh, Seeing people travel through space uh, going in, you know, to the, the, the warp drive or whatever is not a wholly new experience. And then the story has been made fun of. They've seen commercials on TV. They've seen the Energizer Bunny uh, fight Darth Vader. They've seen uh, the scene in Toy Story 2 where Buzz Lightyear uh, fights Zerg. And it turns out that uh, Zerg is actually Buzz Lightyear's father. All of these things that have just been, since the original release of the films, has been uh, shoved down our throat or made fun of or has been copied. Uh, everyone already has that big experience if they're young. And so that's why, again, uh, Nanny Nanny Poo Poo, I'm better than you because I got to see it for the first time. There is no escape. Don't make me destroy you. This one caught me by surprise. Another sort of an emotional outbreak is the January 2016 issue of Reason Magazine, which is a libertarian-ish publication focused on free minds, free markets. I've been getting it for, I don't know, 15 years. I used to have to rely on it as my source for liberty information before the internet really uh, popped up and took over. And so I was reading, they had a whole issue devoted to Star Wars. It came out in December. And they had one talking about the history of the merchandising. And they didn't, this article explains that when uh, Star Wars first came out, they didn't really have the whole merchandising and toy machine put into place. They didn't know how well the movie would do. And of course, the merchandising contracts, they weren't going to go too heavy in, uh, make too much of a big capital investment up front. Uh, not knowing if, you know, in a bunch of toy inventory that they didn't know whether it would sell. And they didn't have a lot of historic precedent uh, because there wasn't other movies that had these huge toy tie-ins, at least not on the scale of Star Wars. So so I was reading along in this article, and this was about a month ago, and something made me 
you know, sort of tear up again with that same sort of tearing up I experienced at the logo sequence of The Force Awakens. So I'm reading here from Reason. For that first holiday season, Kenner couldn't swing into action fast enough. Scrambling in early June, when it was clear the movie, which had opened May 25th, was a monster hit, the company would have needed to start shipping the action figures in August to make it in time for Christmas, an impossible deadline at that time. A very junior designer at Kenner, Ed Schiffman, came up with an infamous solution, a piece of cardboard that promised you the first four action figures as soon as they were ready. It was called the Early Bird Special. Some fans mock it, but remember it fondly. But there's no denying the gimmick did the trick. Okay, we sold a piece of cardboard, said Baudreau. We still kept Star Wars toys top of the mind at Christmas 1977. Well, boom. Uh, when I read that, uh, memories just flooded back uh, like bananas crazy because I remember that I bought that piece of cardboard when I was a seven-year-old boy. Um, and knowing that I could get the toys and that they existed, and you saw pictures of them. And I remember my mom putting that um, that coupon, that piece of cardboard that we had purchased to pre-order the toys up on the uh, you know, the board. And I can't remember if the toys actually arrived by Christmas or whether it was a big part of that Christmas was just knowing that those toys were going to be in my possession at some point in the future. And anyways, I read this article and it's just like, I just couldn't believe how far it took me back and to think about how excited I was. And, uh, you know, if, if you can imagine if you have children who are, I would, I would have just turned seven, uh, uh, explaining that, you know, you need to delay, you know, delay this gratification, that it's just not physically possible. Uh, even though we have a picture of the toys, it's not physically possible for you to have them, but uh, you can have them. Uh, you just have to wait, and you have to probably wait past, you know, that magic moment of Christmas. Uh, it was both exhilarating and excruciating at the same time, and having to have that memory come back was something really profound and uh yeah, good. Coming in December 2015. So here's my big review of episode 7, The Force Awakens. And be warned, there's spoilers ahead. So if you haven't seen it, then you probably shouldn't be listening to this podcast. But be warned, I will be giving away critical plot points that could ruin your movie-going experience. Uh, it's already been out for... Uh, two or three weeks now, so I don't think there's too much danger of that happening. I'm also, I don't think there's a big point in me giving uh, a big review. There's thousands of them online, and every person in the world uh, has already probably shared their opinions on what they thought of the film, but I will spend five minutes and no more uh, telling you what I thought. Uh, first of all, I thought it looked fantastic. 
the the way they approached the film as opposed to the prequels with a lot of the the natural sets uh people being immersed in the dirty uh world of star wars was wonderful uh the acting i thought was spot on uh whatever they did uh so horribly between the the wooden dialogue and the the poor acting in the prequels they have seemed to fix uh even though i bet you know the 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 quality of the actress probably isn't uh in any better or worse uh i mean you can't really get better than sam jackson and owen mcgregor and liam neeson uh and natalie portman uh, i won't say anything about the actress who played anakin but other, otherwise you know it's probably the same level of talent but somehow uh the directing is was just so much better and they still would have to say ridiculous lines you know like oh we have to disable the power couplings or whatever and still have them sound meaningful and engaged uh the the humor was all genuine like and in context which was so much so refreshing uh instead of like the prequels where they have the sort of clown humor uh where jar jar steps in poop um and they didn't ignore the humor either either even though they made a very sort of serious film there was lots of times where there was either excitement and smiles uh and we could really enjoy that part without it without it taking us out of the moment uh, I really liked all the new characters. I liked how they used the old characters. Uh, both of those were were very well done. Uh, it was very exciting. I was uh, I, I loved all the action sequences. Uh, the fights were really impressive. They didn't do the the sort of soft touch that they did in the prequels. Instead, they really uh, slammed on those uh, lightsabers. I liked uh, the Kylo Ren character. Uh, uh, how they didn't make him uh, immediately mature. He was uh, he's kind of a spazzy hothead. Uh, who isn't afraid to, you know, destroy his own room uh, with that crappy lightsaber that he has. Uh, that was fun. I didn't totally understand him all the time, you know, what his motivations were, uh, but that's okay. Uh, and of course, Ray uh, was a fabulous character too, you know, exciting to watch her smile, exciting to watch her sweat. And she seemed uh, both serious, conflicted, and engaged. Now, some of my minor criticisms of the movie is that I thought they sped through too much plot much too quickly. Um, it sort of seemed to me sometimes that they would speed through the development of friendships. Um, you know, Ray and uh, Finn become, you know, such close friends so quickly. And uh, even more uh, ridiculously quickly was the relationship between Finn and Poe. Uh, they spend, I think, a total of you know, 130 seconds uh, doing the escape scene. And then they never see each other until they're later reunited in the film. And it's like, hey, buddy, uh, we're best friends again. Uh, so happy to see you. Now, they probably did that in episode four as well. And we just didn't realize it. Uh, Luke and Han uh, have that nice long commute to, with each other. Uh, but then by the time they, you know, open up the, the door to Princess Leia, they pretty much just have the whole escape sequence and from then on, we all know that they're the, the fastest and best of friends. And, you know, even through the, the last bit of the movie, which is, you know, all takes place after uh, Luke and Han and Leia uh, leave the Death Star in the Millennium Falcon. Uh, she says, it's probably being tracked. Our escape was too easy. Uh, the whole next part of the plot se sequence is all about uh, destroying the, the Death Star. Uh, the other part they sped through too quickly was... Uh, 
the you know the reuse of the star killer of the you know the super death star as being the the scary thing that they had to kill you know han solo explains how it has to be destroyed and the shields removed uh, all within a good 15 seconds uh, of explanation now by comparison in episode four uh they use the same plot but the whole basis of r2d2 and princess leia trying to escape from the beginning was because they had belabored the point of stealing the plans to find the weakness here they just sort of make up a weakness in two minutes of talking with each other and it's a perfectly feasible plan um the other thing i i didn't care for is obviously the first order uh it's definitely a, a shout out to the nazis uh we never really get to see and we never see this in any of the other star wars movies but the the reason why the empire is there and how it's sort of taken care and simultaneously oppressing its citizens, which sort of has to happen is you have to see uh, sort of a, a need from the citizenry uh, and not just a, an entire population of, of militarized uh, personnel whose only goal in life is to, to, to sort of live through misery and uh, fight. Uh, so it would have been great to see in all the films uh, some effect of the citizenry both either whether they were uh, being shot at as non-combatants, uh, whether they were starving to death and begging for the Republic or begging for an empire, uh, whether the supply chain was locked up, all that kind of uh, stuff that would actually happen in in uh, in a real story, and it's also it's also a reflection of how we learn about the Nazis and the communists and stuff during the 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 twentieth uh, century. Uh, we always see Hitler as being this this uh, cloaked bad guy. Uh, we see a bunch of people walking in goose steps, but we never really hear the plight of the people who put them in power or who uh, wanted them to be there or the benefit that they were getting or then later the suffering that they actually went through. Uh, in Return of the Jedi, we get to see, in, in the new ones, the new uh, update ones, we get to see people rejoicing and pulling down uh, the Empire you know, the Emperor statue, uh, but we never really saw them suffering to begin with. I think that would add a lot of depth to the story. Of course, it probably would um, ruin the momentum and all that childhood stuff that we loved about the films to start with. Uh, you know, we, we can make the argument um, that Ray knows too much. Uh, she's an expert um, scavenger, and then she becomes an expert uh, sort of kung fu player with her um, her karate stick when she beats up the people. Then she's an expert pilot. Uh, who can fly the Millennium Falcon just as expertly as Han Solo ever could, even though it seems to be her first time uh, flying the aircraft. And then, of course, she learns the Force entirely too quickly because we know from the whole lore that you have to spend uh, training from when you were a child. They make that point really clear, both uh, when Yoda takes over Luke. It's like, oh, it's too late. He's too old to start the training. And the same story is for Anakin in The Phantom Menace at the end. Uh, he's too young, but then the Jedis have to risk training him anyways, despite being uh, not having enough time to develop a good skill set. Rey has none of this. Now, I'm going to hope that there's a backstory there that maybe she had already been trained to be a pilot, already been trained to use the Force, and maybe her memory was wife. It would be like a, uh, I think it's... Uh, what was it, the Nikita films, um, where you take a super spy and then you sort of erase her mind. And then when she she can begin using her, her uh, abilities. Let me stop this. Let me look that up. Yeah, here we are on IMDb. It's La Femme Nikita. 
filmed in 1990, convicted felon Nikita, instead of going to jail, is given a new identity and trained stylishly as a top secret spy assassin. I think that's the film. Uh, anyway, so that her... Um, and then there was another one that had Bridget Fonda. I just looked it up. Point of No Return, a hardened criminal Maggie Haywards. So this is a little bit different because uh, it's a criminal who's a trained, as a, trained as an assassin, but maybe Ray was once uh, trained as a Jedi and a pilot, and these uh, powers are coming back. And maybe that vision where she has that vision holding the lightsaber where she actually gets to hear advice from Yoda and Obi-Wan and see the backstory of Kylo Ren who uh, was a, a pupil of Luke Skywalker and then somehow fell to the dark side and sabotaged Luke's plans, forcing Luke to hide. But part of that, that story as well is they've created a, a new origin story. So there's this whole backstory of uh, Ben Solo uh, joins the ranks of Luke Skywalker's uh, training academy for new Jedi and somehow between Snoke or something else, he wants to go to the dark side, becomes dark, wants to emulate his grandfather, Darth Vader, uh, murders all the train, training Jedis, and then seeks again to find more power. Uh, it's different because at the end of the prequels, uh, nothing really changes between then and the, the 20 years that passes besides people getting older. Once uh, Star Wars Episode Four starts, all we've seen is we've seen Obi-Wan Kenobi get older, we've seen Luke and Leia get older, and the Empire's grown. But there hasn't been any major plot points that happen in between those times. Uh, maybe the development of the Death Star, but they tell us that's going to happen in Episode 3 anyways. Here they've, they've put a tremendous amount of story, it, you know, at least a movie's worth of story, uh, that's just an exposition. Now what we might be neat to do is if they could go back and do it like in Godfather 2, uh, where we actually get to see that story unfold uh, that might be neat um, one thing I'd also like to see is they never explain why people want to be on the dark side and be evil they sort of had in episode 3 the explanation that he was going to save his wife from dying and that sounds good and well enough but is there something joyful about being in the dark side or something addicting or something uh, that feels like drugs or some other reason why you'd want to embrace your, your fear and anger and a sense of passion to have the power. And maybe the power is exhilarating, uh, but they, they never really quite say that. Another thing is they always show the, they say the dark side is about embracing passion and anger and chaos and um, those type of emotions instead of sort of rationality and reason and peace. And yet the empire and the first order sort of arrange themselves in a very anal retentive, super, organized super disciplined type of way it's not a bunch of people expressing passion so i don't i don't know how that all fits in um han's death so that part you know i found to be an unhappy part of the story not not like a uh unhappy in the way that it's not compelling and interesting uh but but i just purposely you know or personally didn't want to see my hero han uh die and there's not enough we don't know enough about the relationship in Kylo Ren to know why he felt like he had to murder his father. If there is a redemption story later, like there was for Darth Vader, where Kylo Ren is brought back from the brink and learns the light side again, of course, he's going to regret that move uh, horribly and will be in an ocean of regret to the end of his days. 
Uh, so that could be awful. I also, I, I was really unsatisfied with the explanation that J.J. Abrams give for why um, why Kylo Ren had to murder his dad. I'm going to find that article and explore it with you now. So this is taken from an interview with J.J. Abrams uh, at a writer's event. I could look up the source, but it doesn't matter. Uh, quote, Star Wars had the greatest villain in cinematic history. So how how you bring in a new villain into that world is a very tricky thing. We knew we needed to do something fucking bold. The only reason why Kylo Ren has any hope of being a worthy successor is because we lose one of our most beloved characters. Well, okay. So um, I could see that, you know, that's an explanation from like if you were building a plot but doesn't really go into the context of the story and why it makes sense uh, in the relationship between the two characters. He then goes on to say, uh, I had thought Han's story and Leah's story was just about them coming back together. At the end of the movie, they would have reconciled and gotten over the differences. And you would have said, quote, okay, bad stuff happened, but at least they're back together again. J.J. rightly asked, what is Han doing in this movie? If we're not going to have something important and irreversible happen to him, then he kind of feels like luggage. He feels like this great, sexy piece of luggage you have in your movie, but he's not really evolving. He's not really pushing the story forward. So I guess that makes sense. But, you know, what what character, you know, that we still want to have, you know, isn't luggage? Was he not luggage in the first films? Uh, I mean, he could still be a character that uh, pushes the plot forward, acts as a mentor, uh, drives the spaceship around, uh, does his job, uh, you know, drives the plot forward again, and not, I guess, be a piece of luggage. You know, is Poe a piece of luggage because he's just the, you know, the best fighter and only comes in because they only have so many people they that can uh, fly the X-Wing fighter? I don't know. So I don't really know how you define which characters are a piece of luggage and maybe the best way of dealing with a character who you feel is a piece of luggage, not necessarily to kill him, uh, but to find you know something useful for him to do in the context of the story. I don't know. So I guess the in the grand scheme of things, the having something major and permanent is is uh, is the right way to go. It's the right kind of risk to take because uh, it would be kind of milk toast if there were no real game changing events within the storyline. So I guess I applaud it from there. Uh, maybe I'm just you know emotionally being kind of a brat about this one point. All in all, I uh, give the film a two big thumbs up. I'm delighted with the foundation that they set for the franchise going forward. Uh, it's already uh, replaced Lord of the Rings as my son's favorite movie of all time, and that warms my heart. And I'm really excited to see the next two episodes uh, as they come in. And bring order to the galaxy. I'll never join you! If you only knew the power of the dark side. I was going to go a little bit into the Disney acquisition of Lucasfilm and not spend too much time on it. Uh, but they were actually looking to see how much of a stockpile of intellectual property uh, Lucasfilm had. And so here uh, this article is about, I'm going to read from a couple different articles um, one weekend last October, Robert Iger, chief executive officer of Walt Disney, sat through all six Star Wars films. Uh, and he, he'd seen them before, of course. This time he took notes. Disney was in secret negotiations to acquire Lucasfilm. 
the company founded by Star Wars creator George Lucas, and Iger needed to do some due diligence. Um, beyond the movies, Iger needed to know Lucasfilm had a stockpile of similarly rich material, material, otherwise known as intellectual property, for more Star Wars installments. As any serious aficionado knows, there were always supposed to be nine, but how would Disney assess the value of an imaginary, imaginary galaxy? What, for example, was its population? As it turned out, Lucas had already done this cataloging. His company maintained a database called the Holocron, named after a crystal cube powered by the Force. The real-world Holocron lists 17,000 characters in the Star Wars universe inhabiting several thousand planets over a span of more than 20,000 years. It was quite a bit for Disney to process. Uh, So that's interesting. So going back to the the other podcasts we were listening to, that's the extended universe that Disney was actually seeking to purchase, which they would let later uh, decide to shut down, even though they were desperately seeking content. This was from Bloom- Bloomberg Business, uh, March 7th, 2013. So here's another article, uh, just with the financial transaction. Uh, Disney is buying Lucasfilm for $4 billion, uh, acquiring all of its characters, all of its properties, and they also get Industrial Light and Magic and Skywalker Sound. So $4 billion. Uh, Lucas himself got $2 billion in cash and $40 million shares of Disney stock. Now I'm jumping around here. Uh, here's from a different article from USA Today. Uh, film critic Leonard Maltin, also a historian of the medium, was taken aback by the news and had questions about it. Quote, there's no way of telling where this is going to go at this point, Malton said. Obviously, Disney, as it did with Marvel, is investing in blue chip properties that will yield dividends for years to come. Quote, but it's not a fresh property, he added. But it remains to be seen if they revive the characters. There's a lot of unanswered questions. And I find that kind of interesting because uh, Star Wars, uh, to say it's not a fresh property, is uh, completely ridiculous. If you, again, listen to... Uh, Isaac and and uh, Chris Nelson's podcast. They've been uh, the universe has been expanding again to those seventeen thousand characters uh, on thousands of planets over twenty thousand years. And then it's also obvious if you just browse the toy uh, department of any you know big Target or Walmart or any other kind of store, is that they'll always have a total of like four or five aisles of toys. And there's always one that's dedicated just to Star Wars. Uh, the same thing goes for Halloween. If you go out and trick or treat, probably at least a quarter to half the boys are dressed as something Star Wars. Uh, it's not infrequent for them to be dressed as something from the prequels, as equally as the original trilogy. But they far outnumber anyone wearing a Disney costume, be that Mickey Mouse, Goofy, Pluto, etc. So to call it not a fresh property is wholesale ridiculous at this point. It's one of the most vibrant brands uh, among children in the world. So here's a article from Forbes, uh, November 4th, 2012. Donating Star Wars billions will make George Lucas one of the biggest givers ever. In a statement released to The Hollywood Reporter, a Lucasfilm spokesperson said that once the sale is final, the Hollywood billionaire will donate most of the hall to charity quote george lucas has expressed his intention in the event the deal closes to donate the majority of his proceeds to his philanthropic endeavors 
The move isn't a complete surprise, although the sale may have been. Lucas signed on to Bill Gates and Warren Buffett's giving pledge back in July of 2010, promising to give at least half of his wealth away by the time of his death. I am dedicating the majority of my wealth to improving education, Lucas wrote in his pledge letter. It is the key to the survival of the human race. We have to plan for our collective future, and the first step begins with the social, emotional, and intellectual tools we provide to our children. As humans, our greatest tool for survival is our ability to think and to adapt. As educators, storytellers, and communicators, our responsibility is to continue to do so. Lucas founded the George Lucas Educational Foundation and the website Edutopia to reform and improve K-12 education. The foundation emphasizes hands-on, project-based learning over plotting devotion to standardized tests and traditional textbooks. It highlights innovative teaching efforts that are already working in classrooms. You can read more about Lucas's effort in a Q&A with Forbes' Louisa Kroll. So that's uh, interesting. Uh, he's going to give away... Uh, by other reports I've read, all $4 billion uh, upon the time that he dies. And I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, uh, it's sort of bittersweet or happy sad that he's going to focus on education and children, which if you've listened to this podcast, uh, that's been the main thrust of what I've been talking about in a lot of the words that I've said here and also in my book that I'll plug right now on Amazon.com, Rise Above School. Uh, which is all about focusing on children and education. Now, we can applaud that he recognizes the weaknesses in standardized tests and traditional textbooks and the emphasis on hands-on project-based learning. Uh, it's too bad that he just didn't take it a little bit further and would sign on uh, with us fine folks in just getting rid of public education or classroom-based learning altogether. Uh, but at least he's got his heart in the right place. Now, interestingly, I used to work for a firm uh, called H&W, where we used to serve high net worth investment bankers and other people who serve high net worth customers. And one of the most confusing things I ever had to deal with was the trust uh, industry. And what trusts are, are they're sort of elaborate legal mechanisms uh, that enable wealthy people to pass on their money to their heirs uh, or to charity or to... Uh, you know, build that that branch of the the library at the university with their name on it, and usually they focus a lot on protecting the wealth uh, from both erosion between you know now and the time they die, and also protecting it from taxes. And there's two types of trust in particular. One is called the the the, the CLT and the CRT. It's the Charitable Lead Trust and the Charitable Remainder Trust. And I might get this wrong, um, but the charitable lead trust is where you put uh, the four billion or your asset pool into a trust, and it goes. It's invested into uh, regular type of investments, uh, hedge funds, stocks, bonds, uh, kept in cash, and other things that produce an income. And a certain amount of either the principal or the interest that's made up there every year is given to the charity of, of that you that uh, you desire. And but the money earns because you're giving a amount of it to charity every year that you're alive. The whole trust is generally protected from taxes. Uh, upon your death, whatever's left in the trust then goes to your heirs. So it's a great way of protecting the money from uh, from taxes, allow it to earn income, 
and then still uh, give to your charities and give to your, your children. Uh, during that time, the trust can assign custodians and other executives to manage the trust, which can be paid a salary. So it's not unusual if you're a very wealthy person and you have fairly incompetent uh, do-nothing children is that you set up these trusts, you have it uh, give to charity, and then you hire your children as the executives. They might pull a salary of 100 or 250000 or something. Uh, as you know, as the role is executive, and then they get to make the decisions on, you know, where the money is sent to each year. So it's like a do-nothing job that pays really well. It enables to give you give your children an income, while also passing on a, a tremendous amount of money to them. Uh, you know, at a tax-advantaged position. Now, it's also very nice that you're giving to charity and doing something good. And usually people don't uh, decide to use the U.S. government as their charity. They almost always pick to pick causes that are, are voluntary and things that they want to affect. So, again, George Lucas isn't handing over his money to the New Jersey school system uh, or the Department of Education. He's set up his own foundation and his own website to uh, try to influence there. The other type of trust that you could do is the charitable remainder trust i think i might have had i might have these these uh mixed up and in that one what you're allowed to do is you keep the the money in the trust and it's allowed to build interest and income over the time and that money can be taken out at a tax advantaged uh way and then upon your death the remainder of that's in the trust then goes to the charitable cause that you want uh, either one allows you to take income uh hire your children or other people that you care about as executives within the trust and then leave a great sum of money to charity. Now, I don't know, I really don't know what George Lucas is doing with his trust strategy. So I'm just completely making this up, uh, sitting in my armchair. But if you were to take that $4 billion and he put it into the charitable remainder trust, uh, he could still earn uh, a percentage on that $4 billion. And so let's say if we were really conservative i'm gonna get my calculator out here hold on so if if he has the four billion dollars in the trust and he does the charitable remainder the income he could earn every year at three percent return would be 120 million dollars every year uh if he were to get six percent return which used to be i think that used to be a fairly typical return you could get on your money if it was smartly invested uh 240 and if he had a really good investment manager who got him 10%, uh, he would get f 400 million. So essentially, uh, just by putting this money to charity, he could still earn hundreds of millions of dollars each year uh, using one of these trust mechanisms, which would be enough, you know, the guy can only eat one steak a day. Uh, so he would still make a tremendous amount of money through his retirement. And even if he were to have the four billion given away at the end when he dies um, if he lives for 20 more years and it returns that paltry three percent 120 million times 20 i should be able to do this in my head is still uh, he'd still have two billion four hundred million uh to give back to his kids if it made the six percent he would actually have more assets to leave to his children based on those interest payments uh, than he would had he just given them the $4 billion that he was going to. Keep in mind that Lucas probably already has several billion dollars uh, just from making money off Star Wars 
and his movie production companies such as Industrial Light and Magic uh, for the last 35 years. So anyway, that's that's all kind of interesting. He's uh, I'm glad that he's he's thinking about other people and uh, doing something nice, but he can also do quite a bit for himself there. Just as a digression, I did go to Edutopia here just to sort of look at some of the articles. It looks like mostly uh, a very extensive uh, information resource for teachers and educators. Um, some of the, the topics they have here are resources on developing resilience, grit, and growth mindset. Um, explore curated collections of resources related to building the skills, mindsets, and necessary supports to help young people confront adversity, cope with challenges, and demonstrate uh, perseverance to attain goals. Uh, here's the next one is when helping hurts. Learning includes developing time management skills, making choices, meeting deadlines, and coping with possible failure. This becomes harder when adults try to make students' lives too easy. Uh, recognizing and overcoming false growth mindset. Examples of a false growth mindset include praising effort over progress, affirming students' potential without enabling them, and blaming their mindsets, their mindset instead of refocusing it. So it's, I don't know, I guess this is all kind of, uh, sorry about this, my phone. Um, this all seems to be well-intentioned. Um, you know, they do, you know, they're trying to get rid of the, you know, some of the extrinsic motivation type stuff. Uh, here's six strategies for differentiated instruction and project-based learning. So, um, hmm. it's very much like, uh, you know, they're trying to, you know, re, um, you know, repaint the school institution, probably without ever, you know, thinking of how they can do things that they know that are, are right, or at least better than the way they do things now. Uh, but they never fundamentally question uh, probably the compulsory nature of school or its compulsory funding, which really I don't think you can ever get around school until you start addressing those two things. He told me you killed him. No, I am your father. I forgot to mention in my review of The Force Awakens that I was a little disappointed that they had to use the same mechanism of the Death Star over again, which we've already seen twice. There's probably, um, you know, a creative person probably come, could have come up with a hundred different ways that the First Order uh, could have had some kind of mega weapon, mega army, you know, biohazard uh, or other kind of threat that wouldn't have been a giant ball that shoots lasers. The Even the fact that the Starkiller Eight Suns was probably enough. They could have just went over and parked, parked it in the Republic's uh, galaxy and ate the sun, and the effect would have been the same. I also thought that it was kind of weird that they would destroy five planets and the all of the Republic all at once, since if you're a warring army, you usually don't want to decimate uh, the whole population and everything. You want to be able to take it over so you can have them as tax livestock and take their resources. And if you are if you have sort of a philosophical or moral position about how your society is better, you want to convert them to your way of thinking, uh, much like the uh, sort of BSE way the U.S. talks about spreading democracy. Uh, so that in that case, maybe you would just blow up one one planet of the five and use that as a scare tactic to uh, get the other planets and the other um, republic bodies in order. 
I also thought there was a serious uh, lack of urgency, uh, you know, with uh, Princess Leia and General Akbar and everyone there on the the uh, the Resistance planet. Uh, as they saw, like we only have like ten more minutes before the bolt's going to hit us, or or before the bolt's going to be sent. Hopefully, they had a plan to evacuate the planet. Maybe we just didn't see that because uh, it would have taken some time between the time that the Star Killer was charged and before the hyper hyperspace uh, laser bolt would have landed on the planet. Uh, that one little element of plot, I would have appreciated if they put it in. Thanks. Star Wars The Phantom Menace was the most disappointing thing since my son. I mean, how much more could you possibly fuck up the entire backstory to Star Wars? And while my son eventually hanged himself in the bathroom of the gas station, the unfortunate reality of the Star Wars prequels is that they'll be around. Forever. They will never go away. There could never be undone. You're someone who's under the age of, like, 20, who says his least favorite film in the series is The Empire Strikes Back because it was the most boringest one? Then I suggest you shut this review off right now before I carefully explain how much of a fucking idiot you are. So where do I possibly start? Lisa, hate you crunching. Nothing in The Phantom Menace makes any sense at all. It comes off like a script written by an 8-year-old. It's like George Lucas finished the script in one draft, like he turned it in and they decided to go with it without anyone saying that it made no sense at all or was a stupid, incoherent mess. I guess at this point, who's gonna question George or tell him what to do? I take it, yeah. you say action after we roll camera? I'll say action. You do. Some, sometimes, sometimes I forget. People forget. <laughs> if I forget to say action or cut, just step in and say action and cut. He controls every aspect of the movie. He probably got rid of those people that questioned him creatively a long time ago. I also think that everyone just assumed that a Star Wars prequel would be an instant hit, regardless of what the plot was. Really, how hard could it be to screw up? It's like screwing up mashed potatoes. You boil the water and pour the, the packet. Number one, the characters. The biggest and most glaring problem with The Phantom Menace is the characters. This is like the most obvious part of movie making, but I guess I gotta explain it when talking about this turd. Oh, Let's start at movie making 101, shall we? You see, in most movies, the audience needs a character to connect with. Typically, this character is something called a protagonist. When you're in a weird movie with like aliens and monsters and weirdos, the audience really needs someone who's like a normal person like them to guide them through the story. Now this of course doesn't apply to every movie, but it works best in the sci-fi, superhero, action, and fantasy genres. So this is a, a pretty hysterical and very long review of The Phantom Menace. Uh, done by Red Letter Media, which you can find on YouTube. It's about, I think it's an hour to two hours long. And then he does another one on Attack of the Clones. And it looks like he has his, uh, his own YouTube channel uh, reviewing movies. And uh, Isaac Morehouse turned, this, turned me on to this, uh, as well as some of the plot stuff I'm going to talk about later. So Isaac gets full credit for this segment of the podcast. Uh, anyways, but do take a listen to uh, Red Letter Media's uh, review. It's very funny. 
Uh, he not only does an actual very thoughtful analysis of the plot and the characters and the uh, some some of the story, you know, how the story comes out, uh, but he does it in a funny, very funny way uh, where he sort of pretends he's this drunken slob uh, who kidnaps women. Uh, but it's uh, even if he didn't incorporate all the humor, it's definitely worth a listen. I was always under the impression, uh, while disappointed with a lot of the aspects of the prequels, uh, there was still enough sort of emotional cues, uh, like I discussed at the very beginning, that sort of kept me in it, uh, seeing the lightsabers, having the logo, the, the, the music, um, you know, some of the storylines that I knew I was going to get to see. Uh, you know, I thought the Emperor was uh, did a fine job in, in most of his scenes. And so I still had an affection for the films and just sort of in my mind thought like, well, maybe if they had made a few different casting choices, uh, sh- short up the accent acting, uh, maybe, you know, removed a few characters like Jar Jar Binks, um, had people speak in alien languages. I had like a laundry list of things I always thought in my head that they could do. But after you, after you, uh, to make the, to make them work and make them better. Uh, but after you listen or watch this, uh, really detailed review of all the in-depth uh, mechanics of the prequels, you realize that they're flawed beyond repair. Uh, which is really kind of sad because, again, uh, Star Wars has this bizarre emotional bond that it creates in people that you almost felt like, or I almost felt like, uh, you know, that George Lucas can't do wrong because he's the truth teller. He's the master. That's sort of going back to the the bit about the Chris Nelson uh, podcast we listened to is we desperately want someone to tell us what the truth of this universe is. And uh, it was just, you know, it felt like it was just unfortunate that we had to be given, you know, the wrong truth. It's like you're sometimes given bad news, you know. Uh, You can be told that your mom has cancer and you don't like how that part of the story works, but it is part of the truth. And that was sort of how the prequels felt. Um, So given that, I've now sort of rethought, and this is, again, partly with Isaac's uh, input, uh, of how... They could have made them better, and it's really just by stealing two other properties. Uh, there's two things that you have to accomplish in the prequels, as we know. Is we have, uh, we know that uh, Anakin Skywalker is Obi Wan's apprentice, and that he eventually turns uh, to the dark side and becomes Darth Vader. That's the number one thing that has to happen. The other thing that we know has to happen, and this is just you know this has to happen from watching the original trilogy, is that the Republic has to fall. Uh, and become uh, an empire, an evil empire run by the emperor. And, you know, there has to be a clone war. So all of those things have to be accomplished within the plot of the first three prequel movies. And the suggestion now, and again, um, Isaac had said, well, why don't they just, they should do it like Breaking Bad. And when he first told me that, uh, Vader's transformation, rather, um, why don't they just do it like Breaking Bad? What I first thought he meant by that was, Uh, Why don't they just make it like high quality and and a feasible story of the conversion um, to evil uh, like they did in Breaking Bad? If you're not familiar with Breaking Bad, it's a TV series. Uh, It's wonderful. Um, It's about a high school teacher who gets cancer and to pay for his treatments, uh, he has to start cooking crystal meth. And as he begins cooking crystal meth, he has to leave a double identity to a criminal identity, and then his real identity. Uh, he's called, uh, I think, Roger White. I'm not sure I got that right. But Mr. White is his good 
uh, teaching identity, and then he has this uh, other identity called Heisenberg, who interacts with the crime world and gets so deep into cooking meth and uh, that he eventually becomes very powerful within the, the crime scene to the point where he's calling the shots. And then eventually he has to start doing more and more sort of immoral and illegal actions uh, to sustain um, his identity and his power to the point where he, by the end of the series, he is completely doing uh, horrible and evil things. He's, he's having people killed. He's murdering people himself. And he's also immensely powerful to the point where people fear him. And he's made so much money that he could pay for his cancer treatment over and over again. But for some reason, uh, he can never quit this identity, uh, the power that comes with it, and uh, becomes evil before our eyes uh, without ever, you know, having one moment where he is good one day and then evil the next. Uh, so what I thought Isaac originally meant was that we should just, the plot line should have been of the same caliber uh, with the same kind of features, but really what I realized and, um, is that we could just take the plot of Breaking Bad directly and not even change much of it at all and apply it to Anakin. So he could, instead of starting out as a kid, which was kind of annoying, he could start off uh, already married. Uh, he could already have his two kids, and he could get space cancer. And as he goes through uh, his journey, what he has to do, because he's a Jedi, uh, perhaps he can't get the treatment, which might... Um, you know, require him to replace pieces of his body with machinery. Let's say the Jedi uh, don't think that's a good strategy to do, or he needs space medicine. So he takes on his Heisenberg identity, which we could call Darth Vader, and he starts interacting uh, in the sort of illegitimate world of crime, and then probably also in the illegitimate world of politics. As he goes through, he has to do, he has to keep hiding his secret identity, but the Darth Vader character becomes more and more powerful as he gets better and better at doing immoral things to the point where at the very end, um, he's fully doing, you know, all evil and he's addicted to the power that's brought him. And that's also probably entangled him, uh, into the highest ranks of government, uh, hence, uh, Senator Emperor Palpatine. And that, that becomes the whole relationship there. And he, we wouldn't have to have the fake romance that we saw in Attack of the Clones where, uh, him and Padme um, fall in love in the, you know, the beautiful uh, Italian lake area. Um, we don't have to see him grow up. We don't have to have the real sudden transition uh, of one day being Anakin and then, you know, five minutes later uh, at the feet of the emperor being evil and instantly uh, killing, you know, scads of children with his lightsaber. It just didn't make too sen much sense. Uh, it really rushed the, you know, how much he would have loved his wife and created a lot of unnecessary, you know, plot points that didn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, replacing the actor, of course, in the dialogue would have helped immensely, but just getting that story arc right would have been wonderful. Now, of course, uh, Lucas had to film uh, the prequel long before Breaking Bad came out, but if we had a time machine, we could send him the boxed dvd edition set of breaking bad and just say please just copy this because it's really good now the other part of the story that would have to be um, taken is the conversion of the republic to the empire and what i would just copy there is take f.a hayek's the road to serfdom which sort of is an analysis of how 
different socialist countries like Nazi Germany and uh, I believe it's it's either Italy or Spain uh, fall under dictatorships and in these books it's there is uh, a lot of the same things that happen in the prequels as they are now uh, there's false flag events it's the use of military uh, it's the use of you know scapegoating of other people there's uh, you know, the use of the political means to actually be elected into power. Uh, there's propaganda. There's uh, controlled opposition is, is a popular theme in the existing one uh, where he, Palpatine, controls the, I forget, the Trade Federation and then the Separatist and Count Dooku, etc. But here in The Road to Serfdom, we actually start more with, uh, with, with a population of people you know, who are sold a, a bad bill of goods and given a fiat currency, uh, which eventually freezes the supply chain, uh, which causes them to want to, you know, their their dollar is destroyed and they are des- desperate in need for someone to come in and take central control. But, but, you know, part of Hayek's main point is that there's no single person who is wise enough to control an entire economy. Uh, but people still sold on the socialist idea, still desire this. And eventually you need to find someone uh, who has a, well, I forget how he phrased it, but it was like a lack of, of uh, you almost need like a, a psychotic lack of morals to take on the role of someone who can promise that they can control the supply chain, uh, get rid of the, the scapegoated uh, people and bring order back order and prosperity back to the country. And so they end up electing a monster. And so if they had they followed a, a plot line like that, they could have literally have just taken uh, Hayek's text and put it into a screenplay, um, shown the economics of it, uh, show the war aspects of it, and you know get to the point where the, uh, the emperor is voted into power and uh, unleashes his evil onto the world. Anyway... That's uh, that's the idea right there. Uh, easy fix does require uh, rewriting and reshooting all the films, but now that Disney owns it, maybe they'll do that. They just they you know Force Awakens was almost a reboot of A New Hope, so they could at some point trash the prequels and do a much better job. I can feel your anger. I am defenseless. Take your weapon. Strike me down with all of your... Now, <clears throat> I'm going to move on to a slightly different type of angle on this whole Star Wars thing. And I'm going to pull from some of the arguments made by Sam Harris in his first book, The End of Faith, which I absolutely loved. I read twice. And the thing I love about Sam Harris is that um, he's he's so good at so many things. Uh, and he gets so much momentum going that he can then run into other topics that he's not quite as good at. And it almost becomes hard to see when they come up. Uh, so I'm going to read a little bit from the book, and uh, and then I'm going to also just sort of paraphrase what I think his analysis is. Um, this is from The End of Faith on page 138, Leftist Unreason and the Strange Case of Noam Chomsky. Uh, Nevertheless, many people are now convinced that the attacks of September 11th say little about Islam and much about the sordid career of the West, in particular about the failures of U.S. foreign policy. 
uh, he then goes and quotes some stuff from a French philosopher, uh, Jean Baudrillard. I might be pronouncing that incorrectly. And then moves on to Noam Chomsky. Um, and yet thinkers far more sober than Baudrillard view the events of September 11th as a consequence of American foreign policy. Perhaps the foremost among them is Noam Chomsky. In addition to making foundational contributions to linguist linguistics and the psychology of language, Chomsky has been a persistent critic of U.S. Policy, foreign policy for over three decades. He has also managed to demonstrate a principal failing of the liberal critique of power. He appears to be an exquisitely moral man whose political views prevent him from making the most basic moral distinctions between types of violence and the variety of human purposes that give rise to them. In his book, 9-11, with rubble of the World Trade Center still piled high and smoldering, Chomsky urged us not to forget that the U.S. itself is a leading terrorist state. In support of this claim, he catalogs a number of American misdeeds, including the sanctions that the United States imposed upon Iraq, which led to the death of maybe half a million children, and the 1998 bombing of the El Shifa pharmaceuticals plant in Sudan, which may have set the stage for tens of thousands of innocent Sudanese to die of tuberculosis, malaria, and other treatable diseases. Chomsky does not hesitate to draw moral equivalences here. For the first time in modern history, Europe and its offshoots were subjected on home soil to the kind of atrocity that they routinely have carried out elsewhere. Um, he then does a little bit of apologizing here, saying that the you know, killing half a million children and, uh, and tens of thousands of innocents in Sudan is a bad thing, which uh, is good because that's pretty awful. Um, but then he makes a comparison now. He, I'm skipping ahead here. Uh, he, he calls for perfect weapons and the ethics of collateral damage. And what he talks about is is collateral damage is is sort of uh, due to the limitations and the power and precision of our technology so that we may do something to uh, hurt our bad guys, but we have to accept the collateral damage as not being immoral because we don't have the perfect weapons that can uh, fine tune and just kill the combatants or just the bad guy uh, or just the evildoers. Uh, due to a lack of technology, we have to while going after the bad guys, we sometimes hit some uh, innocent people along the way. And if ethically, if we, or actually technologically, if the United States owned perfect weapons that could only take out combatants, we would use them and spare the lives of innocents uh, in, our, in our affairs abroad. Now, the comparison here to 9-11 is that the Muslims uh, have a different ethical framework where they purposely target innocents and not combatants and not the bad guy so that their moral framework is inferior because they're not able to they care not for perfect weapons they just want weapons of of mass innocence and and we could see this probably with other examples besides 9 11 uh they do do uh, suicide bombings you know to buses and we've seen uh, them attack the stadium uh, which was actually the, the French stadium, but of course the president was there. So perhaps they were actually going for the bad guy. Uh, but I think he makes a fundamental mistake about uh, identifying the 9-11 attacks as being an attack purely on innocence. And that's pretty much what the entire U.S. 
population felt when the 9-11 attacks hit. It's like the, the plane went into a office building, uh, presumably full of, you know, innocent civilians, and it was an act of mass murder on that. Uh, the planes also were targeted for the Pentagon, uh, which is the headquarters for the United States military. And also for the White House, they believe. And that's the, I think, Plane 93 or whatever that didn't make it. Uh, but if we think about this, those are all strate- very strategic targets. Uh, the if, if the U.S. had its empire and, and killed half a million Muslim children and has actually about like 50 years of, of intervention and, and killing people over there, then that the Pentagon itself is the Death Star. Uh, it is the head of the military that murders their people. The uh, the White House is the head of where the leader lives. That's where the Palpatine character, the person who terrorizes, you know, and destroys Alderaan. Uh, you know, if, if that half a million children uh, could be their Alderaan, and that puts the president uh, being in Palpatine's seat. And then the World Trade Center is the financial center. So in Star Wars, uh, we never think about what funds the First Order or what funds the empire. Uh, but if that is like in a road to serfdom type thing, um, they would have to have an incredible banking infrastructure that would have a fiat currency that would um, fund, you know, fund ridiculous things like building a Death Star or a Star Killer uh, or all of those military starships and all of those uh, ranks of stormtroopers. Uh, all of this would require a financial center uh, bigger than we can imagine here on Earth. So, the World Trade Center essentially was a military strategic target and not necessarily just a random building full of innocent people. If they really wanted a higher body count with innocent people, they probably could have gone to a U of M. The terrorists could have gone to a U of M game, and there there would have just been a bunch of uh, yokels, uh, 100,000 yokels cheering on the Wolverines, and that probably would have been a bigger kill and much more innocent people. But the fact is, is that the... 9-11 terrorists had definite military targets. It wasn't necessarily an act of collateral damage. It was an attack on the empire itself. And if we take a look at the comparisons to between how the Star Wars rebels uh, use a couple small aircraft, you know, a couple small spacecraft uh, to find like one weakness and get, uh, you know, a desperate shot into the Death Star to destroy it all. Uh, you can sort of see how the 9-11 terrorists use, you know, box cutters and, you know, uh, regular consumer travel aircraft, two of them, uh, to try to take it out, you know, take the largest headquarters of the military and the largest financial center out. It's pretty stunning. So it's interesting that, of course, uh, I'm not I'm not endorsing or, or cheering the deaths of those 3,000 people in 9-11 but you have to look at it when we cheer the rebels going after the oppressive government, that they were the freedom fighters and not the terrorists. And we would cheer it in that situation when it's fiction, but then reverse our opinion completely when we see it in reality. And that's kind of uh, scary right there. You know, so even um, terrorism, the word itself is kind of bullshit whitewash. Uh, Terrorism, the you know formal definition of terrorism is uh, using violence or the threat of violence against others to promote a political ideology or a political change. And 
that's essentially what the U.S. government does over, overseas. So by any consistent definition, either the U.S. military are terrorists, the Muslims, the terrorists themselves that we call them now might be freedom fighters, but both are just sort of uh, useless uh, propagandistic terms uh, used to confuse us. I sometimes wonder if in the future there will be a movie made about Osama bin Laden on how on the back of a camel he was able to take down the Russian Empire and then to some degree the U.S. Empire. And if it will be spun, I don't this is like a hundred years ago when America doesn't uh, sort of dictate how the world works. And it'll be sort of be a celebration of how these two Death Stars were brought down uh, by a person with almost nothing. I think for now, that's all I have to say about Star Wars. Thanks so much for listening, and may the Force be with you. Thank you.